today's session is on suffering. Okay, so what I need to do is clarify what I mean by suffering and, and explain what it is. 2,400 years ago, apparently, now I need to clarify that I'm not a Buddhist, I'm an agnostic, but even if it is um, a con construct, it's still really valid because it applies to the human experience in a very fundamental way. So apparently, 2,600 years ago, Buddha stood up having meditated underneath the body tree for 40 days. And during that 40 days of meditation, he discovered what Buddhists refer to as the Four Noble Truths. And I would say, with the exception of the last Noble Truth, which is actually a marketing spiel for Buddhism, the first three are absolutely part of our experience. And the first Noble Truth that he points out is that everybody suffers. Now, to, for me to say, to accept that, what I need to do is explain what suffering is. And it's very specific. There's a, a Pali word called dukkha. And what dukkha is, is it's perceived to be craving. Essentially, it's the difference between what is the material world, our actual reality, and what we feel the need for it to be, what we desire it to be, how we want it to be different. So, for example, if we come in here to meditate and we want a nice, calm, relaxing meditation space, but instead we get the excavators and drills and diamond cutters in the road outside, there's, a, there's an unsatisfactoriness that arises. And what that unsatisfactoriness is, it's the difference between what we feel we need and what we actually experience. And what we can observe, and this is psychological reality for all human beings because it's a fundamental trait, is everything that gets repeated, there's two responses to it. One is it habituates, and what habituation is, is you get more comfortable with it as time goes on. And the other is that you become sensitised. And what that means is you become more sensitive to it as time goes on. And you can see this from all of those times where there's been a straw that's broken the camel's back and you've flipped out. So, for example, somebody might be engaging in, in unhelpful repetitive behaviour that you, you find is unsatisfactory. And then you let it go, you let it go, you let it go. They might do some big episodes of this behaviour and still you let them go. And then one day, <laughs> they do a tiny thing, and rah, out comes how you feel about what they've done. Does anybody recognise that? <laughs> What's happened is you've become sensitised to the experience. And one way of looking at that is if you, if you multiply that by a modern life's worth of 
unsatisfactory experiences, you get a thing called chronic stress. So let, let me explain. If your life is moving in the direction of you becoming more sensitive to your experiences, it's because you don't have some tools that help you intervene in them. And if you don't have the tools that help you intervene in that, what happens is the ratchet of stress only goes in one direction. Click, 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 up, up, up. And then having a a sensitive element of your experience in your life in one area often translates into a sensitive element of your experience in your life in another area. So if you're close to flipping out because of the unsatisfactory behaviour of person B, you're also on a shorter fuse for person C and D and E. And then when you, it's it, when you take this experience, which is more common than the alternative, which I'll come to in a second, so this sensitisation where we become more sensitive to our experiences unsatisfactory ones and our stress grows and grows and grows. Um, When you multiply that by 8 million, you've got London. And that's a heady mix, which is why you get things like road rage and trolley rage and first through the carriage door into the only seat left train rage and, and so on and so forth. And what you're seeing there is somebody who's been sensitised by their experience to the point where they become emotionally overwhelmed by one more tiny thing. But the problem is we all all get so used to this. And then life becomes being sensitised, 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 getting to the point where we feel overwhelmed And then we look at whatever it is that's overwhelmed us as an unsatisfactory thing. And it doesn't matter what that happens to be. So it could be what somebody says or does or how we perceive it or how we perceive that they treat us or how we perceive that, that they view us or what we think they think about us. And then we're looking for that kind of response everywhere we go. And what happens then is our personal interactions, which are the only thing that counts, we're a social animal, it's our personal one-to-one interactions that are the most important things in our lives. And the goal of those is to gain fulfilment from them. So what we want to be able to do is to sit down with somebody and to, having interacted with them, come away feeling better. Feeling like we've learned something, feeling like we're lighter, like we've left a little bit of experience behind. And then that becomes the Kevlar vest that enables us to deal with 8 million highly stressed individuals that we're sharing this space with. And that's the key to everything I teach, in a nutshell. So when I've finished here today, I'm off to teach an organisation. In the organisation, one of the owners is somebody that came along to my classes when I first started teaching in 
Beckenham um, three or four years ago now. And I, I'm only using them as an example of a consistent experience in, in what I do and what I teach. And when I met that person, their world was shrinking. If we don't live on the edge of our comfort zones, they shrink. Think about that. Yeah. And if our comfort zones shrink, they diminish. Our connections diminish, our interactions diminish, and the opportunity for us to have those fulfilling interactions goes away. And, and when that happens, we have a mountain to climb, and that's where that person was when they walked into my meditation class those years ago. I hardly ever see them now. Uh, there is a revolving door here. You know, so a couple of you have been coming along for many years. And so if you come along on a Saturday, we get visits from people who used to come along regularly five years ago or whatever it might happen to be. And what's happened is generally people don't come to... It's, it's a real unfortunate misunderstanding of modern life that meditation is there for when you feel anxious and stressed, right? We just simply do not get that. But all the same, this is what generally motivates people to come along. And along with that anxiety and stress is a... A, se a sense of diminishing social connection where people are actually often actively avoiding interactions with other people because they find them difficult. And so what's happening is their world is shrinking. And then what I do is I teach a combination of three things. I teach the meditations. They're a slow burner. You don't come in, meditate once, walk out, feel better. It just doesn't happen. You have a practice, you may feel better in the meditation when I'm guiding it. If you come away with any sort of a practice, and that's the critical thing, you need a practice. Then you can build on that, and that slow-burning personal development and personal growth goes on throughout your entire life. And every experience that you can possibly have in your life arises in the experience of meditation and it gets processed. And it gets processed by your ancient mind, not what you think is right and wrong and good and bad and fair and unfair and all of the stuff that fills our heads. This is a recognition of what's absolutely true and what isn't. And we discover that more and more and more in our experience is either not true, absolutely, or doesn't matter. We learn a lot less matters than we originally believe, and we discover the things that do matter, which is those personal interactions. And then what happens is people's world grows. They start joining things, they join choirs, they make more friends, and they're rushed off of their feet with the the fulfilment that they can gain from their interactions with other people, and then I see them less.
and every so often they come back and have a chat and then they tell me. And that, that's the process. That, that, that's what this is all about. So this suffer, suffering, dukkha, back in the day before mindfulness was a, a perceived to be a scientific thing, it was a spiritual thing, and I was dabbling with these spiritual concepts. And I had always had the sense that something wasn't quite right with the world. It's like there was something wrong with the world. And I spent a lot of time pointing at various elements of the world. I used to have this little quip. People would come along to me and say, how are you doing? And I'd say, I'm fine, it's just the rest of them. They're all the problem. And although that was a bit tongue-in-cheek, that's what I believed. Um, I think it was two or three years ago, I heard from a daughter who said, I hate people. Have you ever heard that? <laughs> Have you ever felt it? <laughs> I can't remember which. There was some French philosopher, a little quip, said, there you go. Who was Sartre? Yeah. I think you're. I think you're correct. I think it was Sartre. Hell is other people. Uh, yeah. No. no, hell is the absence of other people, and we all know that, really. Hell is the inability to interact with other people in a meaningful way that fulfills us. So that's just the same as being alone. So there was a guy called Lee Cacioppo who, who is to loneliness what Einstein was to physics. Um, and he ran some incredibly well-funded research prof- projects because the, if, you, if you crunch the numbers, the correlation between, and I've done a talk on this, it's in one of the podcasts, the correlation between loneliness and poor mental and physical health outcomes is not only indisputable, it's huge. It's the equivalent of being an alcoholic or a lifetime smoker in terms of your physical health, and in terms of your mental health, there's probably nothing worse. And one of the studies that he did was to put devices on lonely people that, that would buzz them, and they'd say when they were interacting with someone, and you, you can get, you can figure out who's lonely from there's a loneliness checklist. So that it's the so the results of the loneliness checklist that's correlated against physical, uh, poor physical and mental health outcomes. If you tick the boxes in the loneliness checklist, by definition, you're lonely. So he took these two groups, one lonely, the other non-lonely, and they wanted he wanted to see what the difference was in the interactions. And what he learned was something counterintuitive, which is that on average, all right, and we know that if somebody's old and isolated and so on and so forth, that's a different thing. But on average, taking the average lonely person and the average non-lonely person, they all have the same level of interactions in terms of time. So they all spend the same amount of time with other people. What he then wanted to do was understand what's the difference. You know, he'd get them to make comments and notes about their interactions. And it's it really interesting that he used the term that he used, which is that non-lonely people gain fulfilment 
from their interactions. They interact with somebody and they come away with something. Lonely people don't. So the, it, it isn't the quantity, it's the quality. And all of these tools are all aimed at one thing, and that's helping us to have difficult interactions, process them without it becoming part of our baggage, without it cranking up our stress level, without us retaining the sensitivity that we experience and then avoiding further interaction. So it's all about the white van driver, the irritating noise, the difficult person, the confusing viewpoint, the uncomfortable conversation. It's all about that. That's where, that's where we find everything, being a human being. This is what, where we find our suffering, in a nutshell. The, the, this is the kernel of the unsatisfactoriness of life. So to, 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 to explain Dukkha, I, I think I read a book by a guy called Adyashantis, who's kind of like West Coast hippie that does talks on YouTube and writes books. There's one book specifically is very, very, very good. But a lot, lot of it's kind of new agey, yada, yada. Uh, but I read a, um, a definition by him of Dukkha, and he called it the inherent unsatisfactoriness of life. Inherent, because it's always there, unsatisfactoriness, it's unsatisfactory, and it's just part of life. But it isn't a single thing. What it is, is a, a lifetime of interactions and adversities. There's life adversities, things that change our lives, that make our lives difficult. And then there's lots and lots of interactions. So we're either becoming sensitized or we're becoming, the other word is habituating. We're becoming comfortable with it. So the true definition of meditation is to become familiar with your mind. You become familiar with your mind, you become comfortable with it. When you become comfortable with it, then your interactions with other people start moving in the other direction. Instead of them becoming more uncomfortable, they become more comfortable. So how to get there from here if we're feeling uncomfortable? And one of the things about difficult interactions is that one of the first things that happens is the mind becomes active in reiterating what you said, what they said, I should have said this, how dare they say that, this is right, this is wrong, this is good, that, that's not, oh, let's, not, let's not do that. We rerun it in our heads, this is called reconstruction. While we're rerunning it in our heads, we think, oh, I wish I'd said blah. That would have killed it stone dead. Next time, I'm going to say that, or whatever it might happen to be. And 
That's what it's like to be human. But when that gets stuck, like a, like a, a needle that's stuck in a groove of a, a record, what we need to do is to unstick it because life just moves on. Whatever's said and done, whatever experiences you have, whatever unsatisfactory interactions you have, however you feel, the past has no power over the present moment other than the power that you give it. So to, to get your satisfactory present moment back, this is the place to look for it, right here, right now. So the first thing to do is to get back to now. So we're quite fortunate today that we have a combination of irritating noises. So the irritating noises are a metaphor for the friction of living in a complex society full of people who are stressed. And there aren't many people that can listen to irritating noises without being irritated. And the way that you learn to listen to irritating noises without being irritated is by listening to irritating noises. So the meditation becomes allowing yourself to be aware of the sound. So I'm expecting and the builders to come back at some point in the next 15 minutes or so. And you'll be able to observe this. So the place to start is just by listening to whatever sound there is. So you're better off closing your eyes. And you're also better off placing both feet on the floor. And notice how if you do that, your state changes, how you feel changes, moving from crossed legs or whatever it happens to be, crossed ankles to feet on the floor. In one way it's slightly more vulnerable, but in another way it's open. And so you become open to your experience, and your experience of sound is like lying on your back, looking up at the sky. You see clouds moving past. And if you listen to sounds, you're listening to sounds arise and subside. Now, so let's say we have a constant sound as we do right now and it's in a particular direction, the modern mind will focus on that sound and it will become unsatisfactory. But the ancient mind won't do that. The ancient mind, while you're being drawn into 
whatever experience you're having by listening to a particular sound, the ancient mind is allowing you to be aware of all sound. And what it's listening for isn't the sound that's happening now, it's listening for the next sound. And so here's a good example of that. If you listen to the machine, notice that you're still able to process what I'm saying to you. You're still just as aware of the words as if you were just listening directly to me. But what happens when something in our experience is unsatisfactory, the mind is drawn to it, whether that's internal or external. And this, these practices, meditation, is all about awareness and focus. First we become aware, we're aware of the sounds, we're aware of our emotions that arise, that result from the sounds. We're aware of my voice, we're aware of our thoughts. The first step is awareness. And then the second step is focus. And this practice, the practice of the meditation of no meditation, the sound, is just waiting, just waiting for the next sound. And notice that the sounds are all around you. You're in the center of them. Sound is arising. You're just listening, listening for the next sound. just waiting for the next sound, wherever it might be and whatever it might be.
And you may notice you may notice your modern mind being drawn towards the sound. Drawn towards the sound. Or drawn towards some thoughts. Or drawn towards some emotions. And notice that even while that's happening, so even while you're listening to my voice, you can be listening to all sound. And you're able to process what I'm saying. while you're allowing all sounds to arise in your experience. Just gently return your attention to the room. So to get from the point where most of the people that I interact with are, which is over the course of the last 10 years I've noticed is increasingly more sensitive. Yeah. So this is a universal thing. I, I see it everywhere I go. It's not just the people I teach, it's everywhere. So there's, there's an awful lot of sensitivity. To, to get to the point from where there's sensitivity to the point where there's comfort is a practice it's an evolving practice. And the, the way that I explain it is this. Let's say that you want to be a master carpenter. Right? What do you need to be a master carpenter? Let's say you want to be the best carpenter of the world. What do you need more than anything else? Experience and how? What would? What do you need to get that experience as a carpenter? Practice and what you're practicing on? Wood. So, to be a master carpenter, to be the best carpenter in the world, you you need an infinite supply of wood. So think about this: you get a bit of wood and you're holding it with one hand on the workbench in front of you. Now, you wouldn't do this. The reason you wouldn't do this is because you don't have an infinite supply of wood. Don't worry, it'll all make sense in a minute. On your other hand, you've got the tenon saw, and what you want to be able to do is to cut a perfect 90-degree angle in the piece of wood. And you know that if you do it often enough, cut it, measure it, cut it, measure it, cut it, measure it, cut it, measure it. Eventually, you'll be able to do that. 
If, if you want to see master carpenters at work, look at the Japanese temple carpenters. Go on to YouTube. Be amazed. Because they have an infinite supply of wood. Because there's always another temple to be repaired. So there you go. You cut it. It falls off. You measure it. It's not quite right. Cut it. Measure it. Not quite right. Not quite right. Not quite right. So, if you want to be an expert in human interaction, what you need is an infinite supply of difficult people. And you are the luckiest people in the world because you live in London. (laughs) Now, I know there's only 8 million of us, but to all intents and purposes, that's an infinite supply. Because one of the things you'll have noticed is that a difficult person can be difficult in an infinite number of different ways, and that's just one person. (laughs) Multiply that by 8 million, and you have a lifetime's practice. And what does the practice consist of? First, awareness. Second, focus. That's it. So there's there's no secret source. There's no magic they say this, you say that. They think this, you think the yada yada. This self-help, 99% of it is just for the bin. The other percent, percent is gold dust, but 99% of it is for the bin. Because when you've stripped away everything else, who I am, what I think, what I think I know, my habits, my behaviours, etc., 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 get rid of everything from me and all of you, everything you've ever learned at school, chuck that away, everything, every article you've ever read, everything that you think, throw it all away, gone, the lot of it, you know nothing. What are you? Your awareness and focus. So is that bird? Quite possibly. So is that tree? We don't really know. So are the 14 billion insects that live in the world for every human being? awareness and focus. So if I'm going to teach a universal tool, it has to be universal for everybody. And what does awareness look like? You just saw an example. And what will have happened is this. By doing the meditation of no meditation for sound, what you're doing is you're connecting to an ancient response to our environment. This is what happens to us when we walk through an unfamiliar woodland at night. So if you close your eyes and imagine that the room's empty and you're here all alone and it's dark, here you are, alone in this room in the dark. Notice what's happening. The mind, all on its own, picking up all those sounds. Because you can't see anything. You're instantly aware of everything that's going on around you. So that's the meditation of no meditation in a nutshell. And that's awareness, present moment awareness. And that awareness is there all the time. You just never notice it. 
Why? Because of the modern mind going yada, 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 right, wrong, good, bad, fair, unfair, should, shouldn't, must, mustn't, need, don't need, want, don't want, on and on and on. So how do you get from having a modern mind to connecting to the present moment? And the answer is one moment at a time. Because when you when you have that sort of awareness, it, you're drawn to it. It's not, oh, oh, I've got to sit down and be aware. It's actually, for 95% of people, it's a frictionless experience. But what else do you become aware of? If there's suffering, you will become aware of the suffering. Now, I love my students, but, and it's a big but, I am comfortable with you all suffering. Why? Because it's part of your experience. Because it has to be processed. And to become comfortable with your life, whatever it happens to be, you need to process that, that feeling in the body when there's an unsatisfactoriness, that suffering. So this isn't, if I fall down the stairs and break my leg and, you know, I'm, let's say I become disabled, so, you know, I have to remove it. So I'm now a one-legged mindfulness teacher. That's pain. Yeah, that's, that's mandatory. But so there I am, I'm a one-legged mindfulness teacher. And let's say that I now perceive myself to be different. And you know, many years ago I had a bike crash and I did notice that people treated me differently because I was you know, hobbling around everywhere. And there's, there's this very common thing that you hear from disabled people who get referred to in the third person often while they're still there you know does he does he does he take sugar this kind of thing and what that does is that diminishes one's sense of self if one's self sense of self is is attached to something that's limited now by your disability so there's those two things one is the pain of losing your leg and the other is the suffering of you believing and quite probably not being perceived like the way you were before you lost your leg. One is pain, the other is suffering, because how you feel other people feel about you, you own that. That's you, that's your suffering, that's your pain, that's your discomfort. And the only tools that are universal are awareness and focus. You become aware of it. The more aware of it you are, the more comfortable you get with it. Psychology has got a name for this. It's a thing called exposure therapy. So like, I'm frightened of spiders, right? So I'm an arachnophobe, although I'm getting to like them more and more. I'm hoping that over the course of the next decade, I'll become a friend of spiders. But there's still like a, there's a spider on me 
kind of feeling. And if you're an arachnophobe, you can go to London Zoo and in the spider house, they do a, a one-day session where they introduce you to spiders. And they start off with those tiny little, even I'm quite happy with little money spiders running around in my hand and they're quite sweet. And then there's slightly bigger spiders and slightly bigger spiders. And they're teaching you all about spiders and spider webs, the most beautiful thing in the world almost. It's fantastic. There's nothing like getting up on an October morning or bright and early when the dew's out and walking through somewhere where there's a lot of blackberry bushes. The spider webs are unbelievable. So you see all of this and you, you learn more and more about spiders. And at the end of the day, you've, you've, you've got used to bigger and bigger and bigger spiders. Most of the people leave and they, they get a selfie photograph of them holding a tarantula in two hands because it's so too big to hold in one. <laughs> What's happened is they've got comfortable by allowing themselves to choose to get closer and closer to bigger and bigger spiders. And so they become comfortable with it. And this is what we need to do with our suffering. And this is where meditation is an ideal tool. Because when you sit and you create silence in your mind, you, to, to, become, to get a pretty calm mind, something like six months to 18 months of meditation practice on a daily basis should do it most people. What will happen then is, is you'll notice all of this emotion arising in your experience. And of course, you get to choose. You get to choose when you meditate. So meditate when you feel the most powerful. The most powerful in a day, the most powerful in a week. Take baby steps. You do the meditations that make you feel the best. So say there's seven meditations, there's one that makes you feel the best and one makes you feel the least best, you do the one that makes you feel the best. You're in control. You can meditate one day, not another day. You can meditate for two hours, you choose which meditations you do. You stand up halfway through between, in a meditation. You're halfway through a meditation, had enough meditation now, where you go. Meditate on a train, meditate on a plane, do whatever you want. And you do less than you can. If you can meditate for 20 minutes, you meditate for 18 minutes. If you can meditate for 15 minutes, you meditate for 13 minutes. And there you are, very, very gently nudging your comfort zone and becoming bit by bit by bit more comfortable with it. And that's where the focus comes in. You're either choosing to listen to the irritating sound or to bring your attention back to the breath or to listen to all sound or to repeat a mantra. You have your, your training, your focus, internal focus, external focus. Those two tools, that's everything. Awareness and focus, and it's all taught within meditation. But that's not enough, because it takes six to 18 months to do it. What do you do for the first six months? This is what you do for the first six months. Okay. So the breath 
is an incredibly powerful thing. And the way to harness it as a tool is to learn a pranayama. So who's done pranayama in the room? Hands up. Okay, good. So this is a thing called the four six breaths. Sort of people that do this. These kind of practices are taught to elite athletes, elite military special forces, CEOs, um, high performers, people who spend really quite considerable amounts of money on, on personal development. And what this does is this fundamentally changes your physiology. You may not notice it. It's, it's a kind of 50-50 thing. Half, half the people notice a difference. The other half don't. And to get the benefit of it takes two minutes. I'm not going to do it now, but if you go onto the Bromley Mindfulness YouTube site, there's a a 15-minute video explaining how to... There's an app that you can download, that you can plug yourself into, that you can follow this breathing regime... And then you can see it changing your physiology fundamentally. Okay. And all we're doing, literally, is breathing in for four seconds, breathing out for six. When you breathe in, count it in your head as four seconds. When you breathe out, count it as six. And the way to do that is we count one, one thousand, two, one thousand, three, one thousand, four, one thousand. One, one thousand, two, one thousand, three, one thousand, four, one thousand, five, one thousand, six, one thousand. One, one thousand, two, one thousand, three, one thousand, four, one thousand. One, one thousand, two, one thousand, three, one thousand, four, one thousand, five, one thousand, six, one thousand.
go. That's enough. Right. Yeah, so that has three effects. First and foremost, you're breathing out longer than you're breathing in. So what that means is you evacuate your lungs fully. Because you evacuate your lungs fully, the next in-breath, you're filling your entire lungs instead of just the top part. Because one of the consequences of stress, especially chronic stress, is that people breathe more shallowly. So I, I teach at Darren Valley Hospital, and one of the sisters was telling me that one of the, in the department that she works in, one of their key issues is helping people to do a thing called diaphragmatic breathing, which is breathing in and out from the belly. And ideally, to do that, you breathe in and out through the nostrils. So if you train yourself to meditate by breathing in and out through the nostrils, you do that just by placing your tongue up against the back of your top teeth, then what will happen is that you naturally adopt diaphragmatic breathing. O2, CO2 transfer is more effective. Your body chemistry becomes more balanced and you're better able to manage any kind of situation. That's one thing. Second thing is this. Each time you breathe in, the body's moving into sympathetic mode. So there's a thing called the autonomic nervous system which controls your own entire body. It controls whether you're stressed, whether you're relaxed. And these are two mutually exclusive states. You're either in stress state, sympathetic, or you're in relaxation state, parasympathetic. Can't be in both, basically. And it's like a pendulum. In-breath, stress. Out-breath, relaxation. Because we're extending the out-breath, that's what pranayama means. Prana means spirit or breath to the ancients. The spirit was the breath because when somebody dies, they stop breathing, the breath goes out of them, therefore the spirit's gone. That's how they saw it. You're extending the breath. Extend the out-breath. You're spending more time in relaxation than you are in stress. So the stress ratchet is going generally in one direction. Click, click, click. Up goes the stress. You do this, you move in your body into relaxation mode, into parasympathetic mode. The stress ratchet goes down. Click, click, click. The third thing is a thing called coherence. And this is what you can see on the video on the Bromley Mindfulness YouTube site. Coherence is the synchronization between your heart rate and your breath. When you're breathing in, because your body's in stress mode, 100% coherence means that every successive breath is faster. When you're breathing out and you're in relaxation mode, 100% coherence means that your body, every every successive breath is, uh, sorry, every successive heartbeat is slower on the out-breath. So whenever I plug myself into this device to to do this in a demo, I'll be doing this a couple of times later on today in the law firm I'm teaching in, you can see my 
coherence move from 40% to 100%. It takes two minutes to get it there. And by doing that, what you're doing is you're telling your brain everything's okay. Everything's okay. Yeah. So it actually reduces your anxiety. There's a technique very similar to this that's used by the US military to help operatives overcome fear in combat. It's a very real thing. That's one thing that you can do. Remember, you've, you know, this is to help to get you through the first year. The thing is, so it is, there's a catch-22 here. People come along to meditation to, because of their stress, and it's their stress that stops them meditating. Especially if they're stressed, they sit down and meditate, and they become aware. What do they become aware of? They become aware of their stress. So what you want to be able to do is intervene in it. So that's one, one intervention. So if, you, if you're thinking to yourself, okay, I'd like to meditate today, but I can't because you know, I feel anxious and stressed, and my mind's going round and round in circles... Do the four six breaths for two minutes. If that doesn't work for you, this will. And what this is, is a relaxation exercise. So here's the first part of it, is to place your elbows by your side and your feet on the floor. looking for whatever place it is that your head is balanced most comfortably on top of your spine. I want to find the, the place of comfort. More comfortable it is, less muscles there are in action. Elbows by the side means you're not leaning forward. Not leaning forward, you're not using all the muscles in the back and sides of the neck and shoulders that are associated with stress. Place your tongue up against the back of your top teeth so that you're in con it's in contact with the sharp part of the bottom teeth. Place your thumb and forefinger very, very gently in contact so gently in contact that you could put a slide of cigarette paper between them and allow yourself to become aware of the breath. Noticing the breath rising, noticing the breath falling, ideally in the nostrils. And what we're going to do is relax four key areas of the body. The eyes, the jaw, the shoulders, the hands. Breathing in normally, breathing out. As you breathe out, relaxing the eyebrows, the eyes and the cheeks. And just relax them a little bit more on each out-breath. It may or may not help you to tighten your eyes on the in-breath and relax them on the out-breath. But if you do that, you're only doing it for three or four out-breaths. Just to help you to connect 
to the physiology, the sensation of the eyes. It's the eyes where we transmit our stress. That's how you know someone else is stressed. You just look at their eyes. Getting all sorts of signals, eyebrows, squinting, frowning, eye movements, whole thing. Learning to relax your eyes is a very powerful social tool. In fact, doing all of this, learning to relax is a social tool. Tongue still in contact with the sharp part of the teeth. Breathing in normally, breathing out, relaxing the mouth and lips, jaw and throat. Letting the tightness and tension, pressure and stress out on each out-breath. And so you do this for five or ten out-breaths. So it's five or ten out-breaths for the eyes, five or ten out-breaths for the jaw. Breathing in normally, breathing out, relaxing the back and sides of the neck and shoulders. Elbows by the side, head comfortably balanced, tongue in contact with the sharp part of the teeth. Thumb and forefinger very gently in contact. And you're relaxing the back and sides of the neck and the shoulders. Through that, this awareness focus. Awareness, you're aware of your physiology or reconnecting to it so you become more aware of it. Focus, you're focusing on a specific part of it. Breathing in normally, breathing out, relaxing your hands. And many of you will have noticed that your hands are actually more relaxed anyway. Although you haven't been focusing on that there it is. The breath's acting like a pump, pumping the pressure and tension and stress out of the hands. And then breathing in, breathe into the top of your head. Relax, eyes on the out breath, jaw shoulders and hands, down to the tips of your fingers, down through your feet and into the floor. Breathing into the space behind the eyes, the top of your head, breathing out, relaxing the eyes, jaw, shoulders, hands, tips of your finger, down through your feet, into the floor.
You're learning to relax your entire body with specific focus on those areas that hold the greatest stress, the greatest tension. Eyes, jaw, shoulders, hands. And then again, allowing yourself to become aware of your surroundings. So the last part of that last meditation is what I call the relaxation response. So you've got this four, six breaths, that's useful, but it takes two minutes. If you're having a difficult interaction with somebody and you're getting a mental waterboarding, right? Your emotions are stoked up. Your thoughts are either racing or you can't think of anything sensible. And all of that's stress. That's just stress. Yeah, that's what stress does to people, is, is our rational thought. We want to intervene. And we don't want to spend more than a breath intervening. If you practice the relaxation meditations for six to eight weeks, then you're able to relax your eyes, jaw, shoulders, and hands in a single out breath. And you're switching your body from stress mode to relaxation mode. If that doesn't work, you do it again. You're going to have to breathe anyway, whether you're getting a mental waterboarding or not. And what you're doing is you're pumping out your stress. So those, those are two of the stress management techniques that I teach. Just a bundle of others, and there's a lot of emotional regulation techniques and so on and so forth. And to get to the point where your meditation becomes a useful practice and you really notice that your suffering's diminishing, you need some help. You need some help in both being able to do the practice and also help in terms of coping with the day-to-day existence and hoping that it doesn't become overwhelming during that period so that you can maintain your practice. All I'm interested in is that you practice. And whatever arises in that practice, it doesn't matter what it is. If it's not what you want, tell me. Simple as that. Each meditation should leave you feeling lighter. That's what you're looking for. And you've got all these different practices to choose ones, choose from. Use the ones that make you feel better. That's the touchstone of it. At the end of it, you feel better. And throughout the entire process, you're becoming familiar with your mind. Everything, how you feel, how you respond, what you do, what you experience, Everything in our lives, it's our mind, reflected in our mind. It's our mind that creates it. It's our mind that creates our happiness, our joy, our bliss, our connection to everything, our capacity to communicate, love. If you care about it, money all comes from here. Or on the other side of the coin, everything that's unsatisfactory. That's where it is. That's the place to look.
Okay. Suffering. <laughs>